Chapter 6 Scientists are human, often all too human. When desire and data are in collision, evidence sometimes loses out to emotion. Brian Keating, Cosmologist, Losing the Nobel Prize Elwin Burlakamp took the reins of the Medallion Fund during the summer of 1989, just as the investment business was heating up. A decade earlier, financial companies claimed about 10% of all U.S. profits. Now they were on their way to more than doubling that figure in an era that became known for greed and self-indulgence, as captured by novels like Bright Light's Big City and songs like Madonna's Material Girl. The unquenchable thirst of traders, bankers, and investors for market-moving financial news unavailable to the general public, known as an information advantage, helped fuel Wall Street's gains. Tips about imminent corporate takeover offers, earnings, and new products were coin of the realm in the twilight of the Reagan era. Junk bond king Michael Milken pocketed over $1 billion in compensation between 1983 and 1987 before securities violations related to an insider trading investigation landed him in jail. Others joined him, including investment banker Martin Siegel and trader Ivan Boski, who exchanged both takeover information and briefcases packed with hundreds of thousands of dollars in neat stacks of $100 bills. By 1989, Gordon Gecko, the protagonist in the movie Wall Street, had come to define the business's aggressive, cocksure professionals who regularly pushed for an unfair edge. Burlakamp was an anomaly in this testosterone-drenched period, an academic with little use for juicy rumors or hot tips. He barely knew how various companies earned their profits and had zero interest in learning. Approaching his 49th birthday, Burlakamp also bore little physical resemblance to the masters of the universe reaping Wall Street's mounting spoils. Burlakamp had come to value physical fitness, embracing a series of extreme and unsafe diets and grueling bicycle rides. At one point, he lost so much weight that he looked emaciated, worrying colleagues. Balding and bespectacled, with a neat salt-and-pepper beard, Burlakamp rarely wore ties, and stored as many as five multicolored Bic pens in his front pocket. Even among the computer nerds gaining some prominence in corners of the business world, Burlakamp stood out. When he traveled to a conference in Carmel, California in 1989 to study how machines could build better predictive models, Burlakamp seemed the most absent-minded professor of them all. Elwin was a little disheveled, his shirt tail out and wrinkled, and his eyes darting around when he was thinking hard, says Langdon Wheeler, who met Burlakamp at the conference and later became his friend. But he was so smart, I saw past the quirks and wanted to learn from him. Around the office at Axcom, Burlakamp favored lengthy tangents and digressions, causing rounds of hand-wringing among employees. Burlakamp once said he liked to do 80% of the talking in a conversation, those who knew him viewed the estimate as a bit conservative. But Burlakamp's reputation as a mathematician earned him respect, and his confidence that Medallion could improve its performance bred optimism. Burlakamp's first plan of action was to move the firm closer to his home in Berkeley, a decision Strauss and his wife came to support. In September 1989, Strauss leased offices on the ninth floor of the historic 12-story Wells Fargo building, the city's first high-rise, 
a short walk from the campus of UC Berkeley. The office's existing hardwire lines couldn't deliver accurate prices at a fast enough speed, so a staffer arranged to use a satellite receiver atop the Tribune Tower in nearby Oakland to transmit up-to-the-minute futures prices. A month later, the San Francisco area was rocked by the Loma Prieta earthquake, which killed 63 people. Axcom's new office didn't suffer serious damage, but shelves and desks collapsed, books and equipment were damaged, and the satellite receiver toppled. An inauspicious start for a trading operation desperate to revive itself. The team forged ahead, with Burlicamp focused on implementing some of the most promising recommendations Axe had ignored. Simons, exhausted from months of bickering with Axe, supported the idea. Let's bank some sure things, Burlicamp told Simons. Axe had resisted shifting to a more frequent, short-term trading strategy, partly because he worried brokerage commissions and other costs resulting from a fast-paced, higher-frequency approach would offset possible profits. Axe had also been concerned that rapid trading would push prices enough to cut into any gains, a cost called slippage, which Medallion couldn't measure with any accuracy. These were legitimate concerns that had led to something of an unwritten rule on Wall Street. Don't trade too much. Beyond the costs, short-term moves generally yield tiny gains, exciting few investors. What's the point of working so hard and trading so frequently if the upside is so limited? Like with baseball, motherhood, and apple pie, you just didn't question that view, Burlicamp says. Burlicamp hadn't worked on Wall Street and was inherently skeptical of long-held dogmas developed by those he suspected weren't especially sophisticated in their analysis. He advocated for more short-term trades. Too many of the firm's long-term moves had been duds, while Medallion's short-term trades had proved its biggest winners, thanks to the work of Axe, Carmona, and others. It made sense to try to build on that success. Burlicamp also enjoyed some good timing. By then, most of Strauss's intraday data had been cleaned up, making it easier to develop fresh ideas for shorter-term trades. Their goal remained the same. Scrutinize historic price information to discover sequences that might repeat, under the assumption that investors will exhibit similar behavior in the future. Simons's team viewed the approach as sharing some similarities with technical trading. The Wall Street establishment generally viewed this type of trading as something of a dark art, but Burlicamp and his colleagues were convinced it could work, if done in a sophisticated and scientific manner, but only if their trading focused on short-term shifts rather than long-term trends. Burlicamp also argued that buying and selling infrequently magnifies the consequences of each move. Mess up a couple times, and your portfolio could be doomed. Make a lot of trades, however, and each individual move is less important, reducing a portfolio's overall risk. Burlicamp and his colleagues hoped Medallion could resemble a gambling casino. Just as casinos handle so many daily bets that they only need to profit from a bit more than half of those wagers, the Axcom team wanted their fund to trade so frequently that it could score big profits by making money on a bare majority of its trades. With a slight statistical edge, the law of large numbers would be on their side, just as it is for casinos. If you trade a lot, you only need to be right 51% of the time, Burlicamp argued to a colleague. We need a smaller edge on each trade. 
As they scrutinized their data, looking for short-term trading strategies to add to Medallion's trading model, the team began identifying certain intriguing oddities in the market. Prices for some investments often fell just before key economic reports and rose right after. But prices didn't always fall before the reports came out and didn't always rise in the moments after. For whatever reason, the pattern didn't hold for the U.S. Department of Labor's employment statistics and some other data releases. But there was enough data to indicate when the phenomena were most likely to take place. So the model recommended purchases just before the economic releases and sales almost immediately after them. Searching for more, Berlicam got on the phone with Henry Laufer, who had agreed to spend some more time helping Simons turn Medallion around after Axe quit. Laufer was in the basement of Simons' office on Long Island, with a couple of research assistants from the Stony Brook area trying to revamp Medallion's trading model, just as Berlicamp and Strauss were doing in Berkeley. Sifting through Strauss's data, Laufer discovered certain recurring trading sequences based on the day of the week. Monday's price action often followed Friday's, for example, while Tuesday's saw reversions to earlier trends. Laufer also uncovered how the previous day's trading often can predict the next day's activity, something he termed the 24-hour effect. The medallion model began to buy late in the day on a Friday if a clear uptrend existed, for instance, and then sell early Monday, taking advantage of what they called the weekend effect. Simons and his researchers didn't believe in spending much time proposing and testing their own intuitive trade ideas. They let the data point them to the anomalies signaling opportunity. They also didn't think it made sense to worry about why these phenomena existed. All that mattered was that they happened frequently enough to include in their updated trading system, and that they could be tested to ensure they weren't statistical flukes. They did have theories. Burlicamp and others developed a thesis that locals, or floor traders who buy and sell commodities and bonds to keep the market functioning, liked to go home at the end of a trading week holding few or no futures contracts just in case bad news arose over the weekend that might saddle them with losses. Similarly, brokers on the floors of commodity exchanges seemed to trim futures positions ahead of the economic reports to avoid the possibility that unexpected news might cripple their holdings. These traders got right back into their positions after the weekend, or subsequent to the news releases, helping prices rebound. Medallion's system would buy when these brokers sold, and sell the investments back to them as they became more comfortable with the risk. We're in the insurance business, Berlicam told Strauss. Oddities in currency markets represented additional attractive trades. Opportunities seemed especially rich in the trading of Deutschmarks. When the currency rose one day, it had a surprising likelihood of climbing the next day as well. And when it fell, it often dropped the next day too. It didn't seem to matter if the team looked at the month-to-month, week-to-week, day-to-day, or even hour-to-hour correlations. Deutschmarks showed an unusual propensity to trend from one period to the next, trends that lasted longer than one might have expected. When you flip a coin, you have a 25% chance of getting heads twice in a row, but there is no correlation from one flip to the next. By contrast, Strauss, Laufer, and Berlecamp determine the correlation of price moves in Deutschmarks between any two consecutive time periods as much as 20%, 
meaning that the sequence repeated more than half of the time. By comparison, the team found a correlation between consecutive periods of 10% or so for other currencies, 7% for gold, 4% for hogs and other commodities, and just 1% for stocks. The time scale doesn't seem to matter, Berlikamp said to a colleague one day with surprise. We get the same statistical anomaly. Correlations from one period to the next shouldn't happen with any frequency, at least according to most economists at the time who had embraced the efficient market hypothesis. Under this view, it's impossible to beat the market by taking advantage of price irregularities. They shouldn't exist. Once irregularities are discovered, investors should step in to remove them, the academics argued. The sequences witnessed in the trading of Deutschmarks, and even stronger correlations found in the yen, were so unexpected that the team felt the need to understand why they might be happening. Strauss found academic papers arguing that global central banks have a distaste for abrupt currency moves, which can disrupt economies. So they step in to slow, sharp moves in either direction, thereby extending those trends over longer periods of time. To Berlekamp, the slow pace at which big companies like Eastern Kodak made business decisions suggested that the economic forces behind currency shifts likely played out over many months. People persist in their habits longer than they should, he says. The currency moves were part of Medallion's growing mix of tradable effects in their developing parlance. Berlekamp, Laufer, and Strauss spent months poring over their data, working long hours glued to their computers, examining how prices reacted to tens of thousands of market events. Simons checked in daily, in person or on the phone, sharing his own ideas to improve the trading system, while encouraging the team to focus on uncovering what he called subtle anomalies others had overlooked. Beyond the repeating sequences that seemed to make sense, the system Berlekamp, Strauss, and Laufer developed spotted barely perceptible patterns in various markets that had no apparent explanation. These trends and oddities sometimes happened so quickly that they were unnoticeable to most investors. They were so faint, the team took to calling them ghosts. Yet they kept reappearing with enough frequency to be worthy additions to their mix of trade ideas. Simons had come around to the view that the whys didn't matter, just that the trades worked. As the researchers worked to identify historic market behavior, they wielded a big advantage. They had more accurate pricing information than their rivals. For years, Strauss had collected the tick data featuring intraday volume and pricing information for various futures, even as most investors ignored such granular information. Until 1989, Axcom generally relied on opening and closing data, like most other investors. To that point, much of the intraday data Strauss had collected was pretty much useless. But the more modern and powerful MIPS, million instructions per second computers in their new offices gave the firm the ability to quickly parse all the pricing data in Strauss's collection, generating thousands of statistically significant observations within the trading data to help reveal previously undetected pricing patterns. We realized we had been saving intraday data, Strauss says. It wasn't super clean, and it wasn't all the tick data, but it was more reliable and plentiful than what others were using. By late 1989, after about six months of work, 
Berlekamp and his colleagues were reasonably sure their rebuilt trading system, focused on commodity, currency, and bond markets, could prosper. Some of their anomalies and trends lasted days, others just hours or even minutes. But Berlekamp and Laufer were confident their revamped system could take advantage of them. The team found it difficult to pinpoint reliable trends for stocks, but that didn't seem to matter. They'd found enough trading oddities in other markets. Some of the trading signals they identified weren't especially novel or sophisticated, but many traders had ignored them. Either the phenomena took place barely more than 50% of the time, or they didn't seem to yield enough in profit to offset the trading costs. Investors moved on, searching for juicier opportunities, like fishermen ignoring the guppies in their nets, hoping for bigger catch. By trading frequently, the medallion team figured it would be worthwhile to hold on to all the guppies they were collecting. The firm implemented its new approach in late 1989 with the $27 million Simon still managed. The results were almost immediate, startling nearly everyone in the office. They did more trading than ever, cutting medallion's average holding time to just a day and a half from a week and a half, scoring profits almost every day. Just as suddenly, problems arose. Whenever Medallion traded Canadian dollars, the funds seemed to lose money. Almost every trade was a dud. It didn't seem to make sense. The model said Medallion should be racking up money, but they were losing over and over every day. One afternoon, Berlekamp shared his frustrations with Simons, who called a trader on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade to get his take on their problems. Don't you know, Jim? The trader told him with a chuckle. Those guys are crooks. Only three traders on the exchange focused on Canadian dollar futures, and they worked hand in hand to take advantage of customers naive enough to transact with them. When Simons's team placed a buy order, the brokers shared the information, and the traders immediately purchased Canadian dollar contracts for themselves, pushing the price up just a tad, before selling to Simons and pocketing the difference as profit. They'd do the opposite if Medallion was selling. The small differences in price were enough to turn the Canadian dollar trades into losers. It was one of Wall Street's oldest tricks, but Berlekamp and his fellow academics were oblivious to the practice. Simons immediately eliminated Canadian dollar contracts from Medallion's trading system. A few months later, in early 1990, Simons called Berlekamp with even more unsettling news. There's a rumor Stotler is in trouble, Simon said, anxiety in his voice. Berlekamp was stunned. Every single one of Medallion's positions was held in accounts at the Stotler Group, a commodity trading firm run by Karsten Malman, the top elected official at the Chicago Board of Trade. Berlekamp and others had viewed Stotler as the safest and most reliable brokerage firm in Chicago. If Stotler went under, their account would be frozen. In the weeks it would likely take to sort out, tens of millions of dollars of futures contracts would be in limbo, likely leading to devastating losses. Strauss's sources at the exchange confided that Stotler was struggling with heavy debt, adding to the nervousness. These were just rumors, though. Shifting all of their trades and accounts to other brokers would be cumbersome, time-consuming, and cost medallion money, just as it was turning things around. Stotler had long been among the most powerful and prestigious firms in the business, suggesting it could survive any setback. Berlekamp told Simons he was unsure what to do. 
Simons couldn't understand his indecision. Elwyn, when you smell smoke, you get the hell out, Simons told him. Strauss closed the brokerage account and shifted their trades elsewhere. Months later, Malman resigned from Stotler and the Chicago Board of Trade. Two days later, Stotler filed for bankruptcy. Eventually, regulators charged the firm with fraud. Simons and his firm had narrowly escaped a likely death blow. For much of 1990, Simons's team could do little wrong, as if they had discovered a magic formula after a decade of fumbling around in the lab. Rather than transact only at the open and close of each trading day, Berlecamp, Laufer, and Strauss traded at noon as well. Their system became mostly short-term moves, with long-term trades representing about 10% of activity. One day, Axcom made more than $1 million, a first for the firm. Simons rewarded the team with champagne, much as the IDA staff had passed around flutes of bubbly after discovering solutions to thorny problems. The one-day gains became so frequent that the drinking got a bit out of hand. Simons had to send word that champagne should be handed out only if returns rose 3% in a day, a shift that did little to dampen the team's giddiness. For all the gains, few outside the office shared the same regard for the group's approach. When Berlecamp explained his firm's methods to business students on Berkeley's campus, some mocked him. We were viewed as flakes with ridiculous ideas, Berlecamp says. Fellow professors were polite enough not to share their criticism and skepticism, at least within earshot. But Berlecamp knew what they were thinking. Colleagues avoided or evaded commenting, he says. Simons didn't care about the doubters. The gains reinforced his conviction that an automated trading system could beat the market. There's a real opportunity here, he told Berlecamp, his enthusiasm growing. Medallion scored a gain of 55.9% in 1990, a dramatic improvement on its 4% loss the previous year. The profits were especially impressive because they were over and above the hefty fees charged by the fund, which amounted to 5% of all assets managed and 20% of all gains generated by the fund. The 5% management fee had been determined in 1988, when Strauss told Simons he needed about $800,000 to run the firm's computer system and pay for other operational costs, a figure that amounted to 5% of the $16 million managed at the time. The fee seemed about right to Simons, who kept it as the firm grew. Just a year or so earlier, Simons had been as involved in his side businesses as he was in the hedge fund. Now he was convinced the team was finally on to something special and wanted to be a bigger part of it. Simons dialed Burlecamp over and over almost every day. In early August of that year, after Iraq invaded Kuwait, sending gold and oil prices soaring, Simons called Burlecamp, encouraging him to add gold and oil futures contracts to the system's mix. Elwin, have you looked at gold? It turned out that Simon still did some trading on his own, charting the technical patterns of various commodities. He wanted to share the bullish insights he had developed about various gold investments. Berlecamp listened to the advice politely, as usual, before telling Simons it would be best to let the model run the show and avoid adjusting algorithms they had worked so hard to perfect. Okay, go back to what you were doing, Simon said. A bit later, as gold shot even higher, he phoned again. It went up more, Elwin. Berlecamp was baffled. 
It was Simons who had pushed to develop a computerized trading system free of human involvement. And it was Simons who wanted to rely on the scientific method, testing overlooked anomalies rather than using crude charts or gut instinct. Burlikamp, Laufer, and the rest of the team had worked diligently to remove humans from the trading loop as much as possible. Now Simons was saying he had a good feeling about gold prices and wanted to tweak the system? Jim believed the fund should be managed systematically, but he was fussing around when he had time, five to ten hours a week, trading gold or copper, thinking he was learning something, Burlikamp says. Much like Baum and Axe before him, Simons couldn't help reacting to the news. Burlikamp pushed back. Like I said, Jim, we're not going to adjust our positions, a peeved Burlikamp told Simons one day. Hanging up, Burlikamp turned to a colleague. The system will determine what we trade. Simons never ordered any major trades, but he did get Burlikamp to buy some oil call options to serve as insurance in case crude prices kept rising as the Gulf War began and he scaled the fund's overall positions back by a third as Middle East hostilities continued to flare. Simons felt a need to explain the adjustments to his clients. We must still rely on human judgment and manual intervention to cope with a drastic sudden change, he explained in a letter that month. Simons kept on calling Burlikamp, who grew increasingly exasperated. One day, he called me four times, he says. It was annoying. Simons phoned again, this time to tell Burlikamp he wanted the research team moved to Long Island. Simons had lured Laufer back as a full-time member of the team, and Simons wanted to play a larger role running the trading effort. On Long Island, he argued, they could all be together, an idea that Burlikamp and Strauss resisted. As the year wore on, Simons began telling Burlikamp how much better the fund, which now managed nearly $40 million, should be doing. Simons was enthusiastic about the model's most recent tweaks and convinced Medallion was on the verge of remarkable success. Let's work on the system, Simons said one day. Next year, we should get it up to 80%. Burlikamp could not believe what he was hearing. We're lucky in some respects, Jim, Burlikamp told Simons, hoping to rein in his exuberance. Hanging up, Burlikamp shook his head in frustration. Medallion's gains already were staggering. He doubted the hedge fund could keep its hot streak going at the same pace, let alone improve on its performance. Simons made still more requests. He wanted to expand the team, purchase additional satellite dishes for the roof, and spend on other infrastructure that would allow them to upgrade Medallion's computerized trading system. He asked Burlikamp to chip in to pay for the new expenses. The pressures wore on Burlikamp. He had remained a part-time professor at Berkeley and found himself enjoying his classes more than ever, likely because they didn't involve someone looking over his shoulder at all hours. Jim was calling a lot, and I was having more fun teaching, Burlikamp explains. It became more than he could bear. Finally, Burlikamp phoned Simons with an offer. Jim, if you think we're going to be up 80%, and I think we can do 30%, you must think the company is worth a lot more than I do. Burlikamp said. So why don't you buy me out? Which is exactly what Simons did. In December 1990, Axcom was disbanded. Simons purchased Burlikamp's ownership interest for cash, while Strauss and Axe traded their Axcom stakes for shares in Renaissance, which began to manage the Medallion Fund. 
Berlekamp returned to Berkeley to teach and do full-time math research, selling his Axcom shares at a price that amounted to six times what he had paid just 16 months earlier, a deal he thought was an absolute steal. It never occurred to me that we'd go through the roof, Berlekamp says. Later, Berlekamp started an investment firm, Berkeley Quantitative, which did its own trading of futures contracts and, at one point, managed over $200 million. It closed in 2012 after recording middling returns. I was always motivated more by curiosity, Berlekamp says. Jim was focused on money. In the spring of 2019, Berlekamp died from complications of pulmonary fibrosis at the age of 78. Berlekamp, Axe, and Baum had all left the firm, but Simons wasn't especially concerned. He was sure he had developed a surefire method to invest in a systematic way, using computers and algorithms to trade commodities, bonds, and currencies in a manner that can be seen as a more scientific and sophisticated version of technical trading, one that entailed searching for overlooked patterns in the market. Simons was a mathematician with a limited understanding of the history of investing, however. He didn't realize his approach wasn't as original as he believed. Simons also wasn't aware of how many traders had crashed and burned using similar methods. Some traders employing similar tactics even had substantial head starts on him. To truly conquer financial markets, Simons would have to overcome a series of imposing obstacles that he didn't even realize were in his way.